one of the things that we at PPG pound the table on is diverse teams perform better, right? And that's empirically proven. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, welcome to episode 91. Today, we're discussing how large organizations can help close the skills gap. We're going to hear about this in the context of a large organization, which I'm sure all of you are familiar with. Our guest this week is Divya Thadani, who leads PPG's strategy and business development for the company's architectural coatings business in the U.S. and Canada. However, Divya's impact goes well beyond her business to being a diversity, equality, and inclusion champion at PPG. Now that you know a bit about Divya, here are three things you can expect from this episode. First, we'll get to hear more of Divya's story, what it was like growing up in an entrepreneurial family, and then moving to the United States for college. Second, we'll cover one of the most talked about topics on this podcast, the labor shortage, making education more accessible to underrepresented groups, and how businesses and organizations can make an impact in these areas as well. That brings us to the last part of our discussion, where Divya discusses these topics in the context of PPG. I think you'll enjoy hearing how PPG is taking action around education and the skilled workforce issues facing our industry. Plus, we'll get to hear some of Divya's thoughts as to how individuals can create positive organizational change that extends beyond an individual team or division. As always, you can access more information at the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 91. And if you enjoy this episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating over at Spotify. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash Spotify. But of course, if you're listening there, I assume you are already on the app anyway. With that, let's get started. It's time to meet up with Divya the Donny. All right, Divya. One of the first things we like to do on our show is get to know our guests. And, and you have a number of great experiences leading up to your current role, leading strategy and business development for PPG's architectural coatings business. So you come from an entrepreneurial family. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? Absolutely, Chris. Um, and first of all, thanks for having me on the show. I'm excited. I had a chance to go back and listen to some old episodes and you've had some really impressive, impressive guests. So Thanks. Um, thanks for asking me on. And yeah, Chris, I actually grew up in in India in an entrepreneurial family. I always say business is in my DNA, right? So my dad and my mom started um, a printing business um, in the early 80s in India. And I have just such vivid memories and recollections of how they got that business going and how it truly was what I call a small family business, right? Just really strong memories of all of us sitting around the kitchen table or on the floor working on things that my dad was working on and pulling together. And it was it was a really great way to grow up and just be inspired by, you know, entrepreneurship. Yeah, and I'm curious, what was one of the most important lessons you learned about entrepreneurship from your parents? Yeah, um, thinking about this interview really gave me a chance to reflect right on on that experience and what it's meant for me as a business person today. And I think really the most important lesson for me has been this 
sense of resilience, right? Like how important it is to be resilient and even in the face of tremendous adversity to just power through and think about the end goal and, you know, what's what you're working towards. And that idea of resilience has definitely lived on with me in my personal candidate and professional lives and just a lesson I try to pass on. I have young kids as well, I think I mentioned to you earlier, and just a really important life lesson for them as well. Well, you know, kind of on a on a related note of business, you know, growing up in India, I imagine running a business in India has unique dynamics to it relative to running a business in North America, where a, a large portion of the manufacturing happy hour audience is based. You know, what's something you've taken from that experience that's helped you in your career? Absolutely. And I think, again, this is related to that idea of resilience. And this was in the early 80s. Privatization was just becoming a thing in India, lots of government, lots of bureaucracy, as my dad and mom ran around to get the different licenses they need, importing, they imported their printing machines from Germany at the time. And it was just this, you know, it was a really um, unique time, I think, in India as the country was going on its journey of independence, you know, moving from very publicly owned, government-owned enterprise to private private enterprise. And it was an interesting time to be in business, to be launching a business. But again, this idea of, my mom always told me, right, like nothing worth doing is easy, right? And I, I remember living that with them on a day-to-day -day basis as I watched them get going and build this business from buying the real estate where they set up to importing the machines to winning jobs and, and getting that business up and running, right? And I, to me, our lives really changed with that business, right? Like I certainly... I always tell my kids today, like, you're blessed to be born where you are and with the means and resources you're born in. And I think back and I never dreamt I'd have the life I have, right? And I owe a lot of that to just the resilience, the strength um, of my folks and what they did to get that business going. Well, I, lo I love hearing the reflection. And, and certainly I, I can imagine how, you know, being part of an entrepreneurial family, owning a family business can certainly change your life. But that also, I think, segues into our next question, right? You had another big life event that, that I want to talk about. You know, you came to the U.S. for college, I believe, in 1995. Can you tell us what it was like going through that experience? Yeah, and I always joke, right? The benefit of being young and stupid and not thinking about <laughs> thinking about what could go wrong is a tremendous advantage. Is a tremendous advantage to have. And uh, yeah, I mean, applying to college in the early '90s is nothing like it is today, right? And even to me, I'm awestruck by some of the things we did. It wasn't as easy to pick up the phone and make an international call. Like I had to go down the street and like pay a lot of money to, you know international standard dial is what we called it at the time just go down and like call the colleges if things if there was a snafu and such and it was really really different like the internet wasn't a thing at the time so these glossy magazines would show up i had never even left india until i took that flight to cleveland to get to worcester to the college of worcester where i ultimately went so i always joke like the benefit of not thinking about what could go wrong or what knowing what could go wrong was a tremendous advantage and for me, really, it was a dream that really started with my mom trying to help my brother apply to colleges, right? And he never really did, but I would see all these college brochures come home and really were intrigued by the possibilities and ended up applying for a few different to a few different schools. And again, it was like pen and paper applications that you had to go to the post office to mail, right? So there was a number of just tactical things that looked very different than they do today. And again, I didn't even really have a sense of 
where I was going or what I was doing other than the pretty pictures in, in the brochure. So very different experience. And again, look back and just think about how lucky I was that it worked and that I had the tremendous experience that I had, that Worcester was set up with the resources to support international students like me to have an amazing transition and an amazing experience and really integrate into that small liberal arts community. So again, it was a real, not without its challenges, right? I remember going back from Christmas break, my first Christmas break at Worcester and telling my mom, I don't want to go back. I, I think I'm done. This isn't for me. And she really pushed me to just give it a couple more months and give it another semester, right? Which I did. And, and something flipped in, in that following term. And the rest is history, as as they yeah. say, right? So, yeah. A lot of great aspects to that story. I think there's something to be said for having like the right, let's say a, a healthy amount of naivety, because then you can take some of those risks that otherwise, if you put more thought to, you might find a way to back out on. But but great to hear that your, your parents were continuing to sp uh, support you through that part of your journey as well. And, and as we get to maybe are the more macro portion of our discussion. I think this ties into your story and, and what we talked about before the interview as well. We're going to be talking about, you know, there's a shortage in skilled labor today. We're going to be, we talk a lot about diversity and inclusion on this show as well. And, and from your experience coming to the U.S., can you share how we can make engineering and business education more accessible to underrepresented groups? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question, Chris. And I think obviously, there's this idea of access, right? Like enabling enabling underrepresented minorities, whether it's income, ethnic diversity, all of that. Giving, giving those groups access, which comes through educating people about the possibilities even, right? Like for me, I, I, I didn't even know what was possible until someone showed me that, right? And in this case, it was my, my mom and, and dad who really supported me through that journey. But a lot of people in these groups don't have that support system, that structure set up. So I think a lot of it is that education of just even educating people to what the possibilities are, right? So I think that's one really, really big element of the puzzle. But then I think the other big one is once once we give people the chance, right? Once we, once we give folks the access, we need to set up the support to make sure they're successful. And again, I think back and preparing candidate for this interview really forced me to think about this, right? Like, I could have gotten to Worcester and just be parked in the middle of campus and said, okay, go make it happen, right? But they, they were very intentional. The college was very intentional about how they supported folks like me that, again, had I had never stepped into a Walmart, right, until I showed up in the U.S., but that's the place I went to get all the supplies for my dorm room. And, and that international student's office, like, made it possible for me to make that trip, told me what I would need, set me up with a host family to make sure I had somewhere to go for the holidays when everyone else left campus, right? So I think, again, going back to present day and the macro that you're talking about, that support system and how we think about supporting folks once, we, once they have the access to the opportunity is equally as important as access, right? It's that support and enablement for success, I think is really critical. And that applies really well, I think, even to the corporate world, right? Like I have a, a, a very, you know, unique, young, very, both in terms of demographic experience, all of that team that reports into me and part of my business responsibilities. And again, my role as a leader very much is to support them in their journey and to enable them to be successful, right? So I think, it applies in many different aspects of what we're talking about here today. 
One of the things that stuck out in that answer was you talked about not only providing that initial access, but that ongoing support afterwards. It's mm -hmm. nothing that, you know, you, you, you need to have both. You can't just provide one or the other. And, and I feel like we're going to be revisiting a lot of these topics as we get into the next aspect, which is the skilled, uh, you know, shortage of skilled trades. So, you know, from a macro standpoint, what forces in the manufacturing industry are driving a shortage of skilled trade professionals today? Yeah, and I think I think there's been sort of an evolution in in that space anyway. And then I think like a lot of other trends, COVID has really accelerated some of the dynamics we we were starting to experience anyway. So one of the stats that jumped out at me is that we lost 1.4 million manufacturing jobs in the U.S. during the early days of the pandemic. Um, and that going to a variety of phenomenon, right? Whether it's um, increase in retirements, increase in savings for workers, I think lack, lack of access to childcare was a big one. And again, that's one that's near and dear to my heart as a working mom, just the early days of the pandemic and virtual school and all the dynamics that went with it posed a very unique challenge um, for people across, across the spectrum of work and particularly in manufacturing trades and we saw it at ppg right like this lack of access to frontline workers impacted us very quickly and very early in the pandemic so i think it's a variety of factors but those those are some and just the numbers are startling to me right like 1.4 million manufacturing jobs in the us alone is a lot of jobs yeah we we've seen the numbers are staggering i mean i think it's something like 2.4 or 2.1 i've seen different numbers like expecting to have that many millions of unfilled manufacturing jobs by like 2030 so the numbers are huge you said something there that that brought this question to mind where we've talked about educational institutions and you were just reflecting on your experience at ppg as well so how can organizations have a direct impact on educational opportunities within younger generations? Yeah, it's. Um, I think that's a really interesting question too, right? I think one of them is, is funneling dollars to education, which we do very directly through our PPG Foundation. We care deeply about obviously STEM education and we care deeply about underrepresented minorities and that's where we funnel a lot of our dollars just through our PPG Foundation. So that's, that's obviously one area, right? But then I think the other, which I was listening to a podcast with Dolly Parton and Adam Graff that I'll encourage you to go listen to. She's an amazing, amazing conversationalist on this podcast, but she just announced how she's going to support every employee that chooses to pursue higher education. You know, I mean, she mentioned that she would recommend, their company would recommend fields for those folks to choose, but ultimately would support any area of education that their employees would choose. So I think that's another one, right? There's the idea of educating folks to enter the trade. But once you have employees, once you have folks in the trade, how do you enable them and enable them to continue on that education journey, right? And again, I think funding is a big one. And I think corporations in America and Canada around the world can have a great impact by just putting their dollars to work in, in, in that way. Yeah, I was I was frantically taking notes to note that podcast. So if I can find it, I'm gonna have to throw that in. The, I'll send in the you notes. the link. It's Work Life is Adam Grant's podcast, and he does an amazing job with it. So awesome. Well, hey, the Dolly Parton episode does sound awesome. I am a big Dolly fan, and uh, <laughs> you know, it's you know another another question that comes up here is you know 
Why is it important now more than ever to increase investments in educational opportunities within historically underrepresented groups? You know, you talked about the staggering numbers in the start. So, you know, going from that into this question, what are your thoughts there? Absolutely. I think one of the things that we at PPG pound the table on is diverse teams perform better, right? And that's empirically empirically proven. And how how do you drive diversity in an organization, whether it's socioeconomic, ethnic, um, you know, cultural, all of that gender diversity, um, so on and so forth. And I think one way to drive that is, again, through investments in underrepresented communities and underrepresented minorities overall. And again, I think that lifts not just companies and teams, but candidly all of society, right? Which, again, depending on where your um, affiliations and emotions on that front lie is, is important to me and candidly the company that I work for as well. We'll be right back right after a word from our sponsor. Are you looking for the biggest events in the automation industry? If you are, you're going to want to hear about today's sponsor, A3, the Association for Advancing Automation. A3 is the leading global automation trade association of the robotics, machine vision, motion control, and AI industries. They also throw some of the best events in the automation and manufacturing space. And for me, they're the source of some of the best connections I've made in the manufacturing industry. You might not realize this, but throughout the years, we've featured over 10 different A3 partners on this podcast. Now, whether we're talking about their annual business form or their marquee event, the Automate Show, A3's events are the spot for building partnerships, exploring new technologies, and getting a pulse on the industry. If you're listening to this episode before June 2022, make sure to check out Automate 2022 taking place in Detroit, Michigan, June 6th through 9th. I, for one, will definitely be there. Head to automateshow.com for more information and to register for free today. And you can always learn what A3 has going on by visiting automate.org. And now, back to today's episode. Well, I'd love to talk about this, like, specific to PPG as Mm -hmm. well, because you represent a very large organization that does make an impact in this area. So, like, at a macro level, how is PPG investing in the next generation through partnerships, grants, and, you know, investments in educational programming with an emphasis on STEM? Yeah, again, a number of ways. I think our foundation is one where, again, we we funnel dollars through STEM education, um, not just in trades that directly impact our company, but overall engineering, math, science, so on and so forth. And in communities, I think one of the things we do a lot of that you've probably seen some press on is PPG organizes what we call colorful communities, right? In keeping with our tagline to protect and beautify the world, one of the... Um, community service projects that we do many of on an annual basis is this idea of colorful communities. I mean, I've personally painted schools, women's shelters, so on and so forth as part of this program. So employee engagement and the betterment of our communities is one way. Uh, We also have a really strong um, partnership with NSBE, which is the Black Engineers, National Society for Black Engineers. Um, You know, we, we have ongoing involvement with the construction Specifications Institute that furthers educational training and awareness of careers in construction and the painting industry. And we've also committed to invest $20 million by 2025 to 
funding educational programming for underrepresented communities. So those are just, again, specific ways that, that we're engaging, um, you know, with our communities and, again, speaking with our dollars in areas that matter to us. Absolutely. You know, I love having the tangible examples there. I think another thing I'm excited to to dive into is some of your personal experience with this at PPG, because from what I've seen working at a large company, looking at other large companies, you know, everyone has some skin in the game when it comes to this. This is part of the culture there. But, you know, you're also one of PPG's diversity, equality and inclusion leaders. What's it been like leading this initiative at a large company like PPG? Yeah, I've been I've been really proud of a lot of the things that PPG's done, particularly over the last couple of years, right? So I serve as the diversity ambassador, we call them for our US and Canada architectural codings business, which one is one of PPG's largest um, business units. And in so in that role, my my goal and mandate really is to drive um, DE&I across the company to help Marvin Mendoza, our head of DE&I, with his goals, right, which is ultimately to in, increase diversity at, at the company. So that's been my personal involvement. But again, I think PPG, like many other companies, always had programs in place to drive diversity in the traditional groups, right? Like we've had a WLN, so Women's Leadership Network, for a, for a, for a long time, lo much before I joined PPG, right? But really over the last two years, we've really put much more discipline and action around how we're managing our DEI efforts, starting with the hiring of Marvin Mendoza in, in 2020. And like many other businesses, I think this call to action really came from the events of the summer of 2020 with the murder of George Floyd, which really sparked, I think, public debate and brought very much to the forefront how much people cared about just social justice and equality across the spectrum, but particularly in the workplace. And I think to me, um, someone like we've had lots of discussions about this, but uh, until companies with the means and resources take a stand like that, it's going to be really hard to drive change in, in the world and in the country. And it's been really amazing to watch PPG take a stand, right? I think Michael McCary, our CEO, and the earnings call that order condemning that incident, right? Which to me was a really powerful statement about how deeply he cared. And as a result, the company cares about the issues. A big answer there that I have a handful of questions that, that stem from that. So, you know, I... Maybe let's look at this holistically really quickly. You mentioned like summer 2020, and, and I saw a number of companies step up to the plate um, during that time, PPG being one of them. But, you know, I'm, I'm curious, like, when did this overall DE&I journey start for PPG? And where are you today? And, and where would you like to go in the future? Yeah, absolutely. I'd say we're very much at the early stages of our journey, right? We, we have certainly goals we've put in place. So we've put in place some goals around, you know, gender diversity, uh, represented representation of underrepresented minorities in the US. We just published our first ever DEI report a, a couple of months ago. But I think we're very early in this journey and we have a long, long way to go. PPG is a 135 year old heavy industrials manufacturing company has all the history and the tradition that you'd expect that kind of company to have, right? So I think we're at the very early stages of our journey. I think we've 
define near-term goals the way I think about near-term being 2025, so call it two to three years, three years out really from now. But I think, I think, I mean, candidly, I think we need to be much more aggressive. We need to pound the table much harder than we have so far around driving goals and this call to action, right? And we have, like any company, right? Like we have many employees who've embraced this journey and and are well on the path and, and are allies and are going to push for this journey. And then we have others who are skeptical, right, on the value of what we're doing. So again, I'd say early early stages of the journey, pleased with the progress, but not not happy with where we are, I think is something that one of our leaders say. And I'd say that characterizes this journey for sure at this point in time. But again, I think the important thing is we've recognized the challenge and we've recognized that we have a long way to go, you know? Well, uh, another thing that sticks out in that answer is you mentioned, hey, PPG's a hundred plus year old company, rich in tradition, um, very industrial focused. I mean, I, I think we're still in, in the day and age where when people think of, hey, what companies are you know, the forefront of DE&I, most people don't default to manufacturing. And there are a lot of examples of how that's changing, right? But, you know, let, let's talk manufacturing a bit more for a second. We talk about digital transformation and things like that on the show quite a bit. So let's let's tie this together. How are other trends like that shift to digital impacting your DE&I efforts? Yeah, absolutely. I think like many other places, I think the shift to digital is going to be an enabler, right? Like we no longer have to worry about someone being willing to relocate to Pittsburgh, which you could argue, I love it here and um, it's been a great city for me. We've just lived here five years and now I, I tell my husband I'm gonna die in Pittsburgh, right? You're gonna drag me kicking and screaming out of here. But there's many people who don't feel that way about about this city, right? So, um, so I think in that sense, it's made life easier, right? Because you go out and you, you recruit the best talent regardless of where they are. I was talking to someone from HR the other day and he pointed that the last three, four, five leaders they've hired in HR, Marvin Mendoza himself is not based in Pittsburgh, right? And I think digital enables enables people to be anywhere, anytime and to be effective. So I think I think that's one way, but I again, I think on that, on we have so many, it enables us in so many different ways, right? Like I leave to pick up my kids at three o'clock, which which uh, two years ago, I wouldn't even have dreamt of doing, right? And I come right back to my desk and continue working if I'm if I'm at home. And just DEI comes in many shapes and forms. I think working moms is, is another one, right? Like I happen to have a very supportive boss, a very supportive spouse, um, and I can and contribute at work any any time of the day or night, I, I choose to pretty much, right? And I think that it comes in many forms. And again, I think, the pandemic has really helped us think about work differently and how we motivate and retain employees differently. And I was in India a couple of weeks ago, right? And and before COVID, I don't think I would have dreamt of, hey, at nighttime, I can log on and continue working and join meetings just as I would have if I was sitting in Pittsburgh, right? So, so I think it's enabled us to just think very differently about ways we work, how we work, where we work from, which again is all related I think, to the DEI conversation as well. Absolutely. I mean, it's certainly a, a silver lining, right? Where, you know, if, if you're trying to hire diverse talent, talent, you're no longer limited by geography, right? You know, you can have someone working 
you know, in any time zone, really, exactly. uh, at that point. And, and you're a prime example of that. You know, funny enough, I'm doing this interview in New Orleans where I'm working remotely for a month, right? So, uh, and and I have to back you up on that that Pittsburgh comment. I have, I went and visited for the first time in a very long time this summer, and I love that view when you come. I, I think it's like the Fort Pitt Tunnel. I can't remember which yeah. one it is, but where and the skyline. And you come out and you see the, I know. Yeah, that, it gives me goosebumps thinking about it, but yeah. It's uh, it, as a longtime uh, San Franciscan, I used to live out there. It's a similar thing with the the Golden Gate Bridge jumping out. So that was the first time I, I got a taste of that in the middle of the country. So no, lovely town. Um, you know, we're, we're coming to the end of our interview, but I, I do have a, a big question because we have people that listen to this show, many of them work for large companies, right? And at the end of the day, the architectural coatings business represents just a portion of PPG's overall business. You're part of a bigger organization. So how do you effectively create positive cultural change that goes beyond your group and into the bigger organization? Absolutely. And again, I think it starts as a leader of a team, right? And I think like one of the things that we've been spending a lot of time doing is how do we engage our organization with the senior leadership team, but then how do we enable that next level to engage with their direct reports and so on and so forth, right? So we've we've started a very, again, very um, intentional program around, um, you know, how we engage with our leadership exchange. And then what they, people are starting to hear about this and employing it in other business units, right? And and it's been really successful as far as we've gotten now. And really the goal is to cascade it down through the organizations. So I think again, it starts with engaging your team, supporting your team, enabling then your teams to be better leaders for their teams, and then permeating that throughout the organizations, right? Like one of the things that came up, for example, in some of the conversations I had as part of this effort was this desire to get to know other people in similar functions, but in the different business units, right? We have a number of different business units in PPG. So then again, enabling people to form those connections, right? And I think it happens, again, very intentionally with the leadership team thinking about very constructive ways to drive cultural, cultural change, engagement, so on and so forth, but then also being intentional with how it permeates, not just in your business unit, but across, across the company. Great advice as, as we get towards the end of the interview. We've covered a lot of ground today, Divya. Is there anything that you wish I would have asked you that uh, I haven't yet? So I always, Chris, I always get asked about advice, right? Like what advice would you give people? And then I flip that question. I'm like, what advice do I wish someone had given me, right? And 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 two things. One piece of advice that I I give myself every day is don't burn any bridges, right? Like you know, I feel like it's a very small world, particularly in the space that I work in as a woman in business and in industrial business, right? So don't burn any bridges is one. And then my younger self, I wish, I wish, and you'll laugh when I say this based on the first part of, of the, this interview, but the, the thing I encourage younger folks to do is just take more risks, right? Whether it's that one class at business school, that's a really hard class that you're not going to get an A in, take that class, right? And just I I I encourage my kids like take educated risks, right? I, and I think that's something I wish candidly I had done more of earlier on in in my career. 
excellent advice to wrap the interview on great actions for the audience to go after uh after they listen to this what's the best way to connect with uh with you and ppg yeah so i'm on linkedin um also emails easy you you feel free to post my email in in the show notes and then ppg um again we use social media and our website um and you can post those in the in the show notes as well Absolutely. Everything will be over there in the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com. And with that, Divya, I just want to thank you so much for jumping on today's show. Hey, thanks for listening. And a big thanks to Divya and all the folks that made this episode possible. If you want to learn more, you can head to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 91. That's where you can access the show notes for this episode, as well as any pertinent links mentioned throughout the conversation. Before we wrap up, I do want to thank our sponsors, A3, the Association for Advancing Automation. If you're listening to this in 2022, or I should say before June 2022, well, make sure you register for Automate, their big show taking place in Detroit between June 6th and June 9th. It's free to register, and you can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash automate2022. I'll be there covering the show, and it would be great to see you there as well. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating over at Spotify. You can do that in the app. There is a five-star button. It is not hard to do that, and you can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash Spotify. And with that, that's a wrap on this week. Stay innovative, stay thirsty. We'll catch you again next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.